Well, good morning, everyone. It's, it's wonderful to see you on this Lord's Day. Colossians chapter 1 in our Bibles, if you, if you have a Bible this morning, if you do not, there's one provided for you in the seat beneath you or in front of you, page 833. We're just going to read the 24th, 5th, and 6th chapter of this text. That This is the second Sunday that we've been working through, 24 through 29, and we, we um, have one more, all spared and Lord willing, next, next week. So, just a second, I'm going to begin reading from verse 24. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. Once, or excuse me, now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. And then we asked last week, we'll ask again, well, what is the word of God in its fullness? What is everything that God wants us to know? Verse 26, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's bow together as we um, consider the, the lyrics to the second song that we sang and as we pray for God's spirit to come down on all of us this morning. Our God and Father, we, as always, we, we find ourselves once again on this Lord's Day in this, in this privileged place of being in your presence and the company of your people to hear from you, God, the living God, in the pages of the Bible. And so, Father, we asked exactly what we sang, that your spirit would come down on us, that you will take your word and put it into our lives to the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, the last time that we were together, we, we worked under the heading, The Genuine Marks of a God-Given Ministry. And we began by saying that if Paul was able to answer the question, who is Jesus Christ, with clarity, with authority and certainty, which he did in verses 15 to 20 of chapter 1, and if Paul was able to answer the other crucial question, what is a Christian, with clarity and certainty, authority in verses 21 to 23 of chapter 1, it stands to reason that the answer to another crucial question, what are the genuine marks of a God-given ministry can be answered and it must be answered, especially in light of the Bible's many warnings against false dogmas, false ministries, and false ministers that ruin whole lives. That just as Jesus said, shut men out of the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, these uh, verses read and all five verses there uh, provide for us one of the clearest statements in all of the Bible of just what are genuine marks of a God-given ministry. And the approach that Paul takes in revealing to the Colossian Christians and to us Cohasset Christians as well was he didn't necessarily give them a list. He gave them his life. Because his life provides for us a pattern for servants of the gospel, both for his day and our day, which is essentially the apostolic pattern 
Paul received this from Christ. And we said last week that Christ received this from God. And it needed to be passed down a certain way which all ministries are to conform to in principle. And this is very important. We understand and we need to understand that our message is constrained. It's constrained by what Jesus said. The ministry is constrained. It's constrained by what Jesus did and what Paul did. In fact, in another place, Paul said that I, you follow me as I follow Christ. Therefore, we discovered then that the source of Paul's ministry, verse 25b, was God himself. We learned that Paul did not choose his task. Rather, he was appointed his task. And then we also learned that he didn't choose his message either. But his message was given to him. It was entrusted to him. As Paul writes that he received this commission from God. And we said that the, commission, the word commission is, was actually steward. And Paul was a steward of a given message. So he didn't have the liberty to say anything he liked, if you would, Sunday by Sunday. And he didn't have the liberty to get new messages as, as if new messages were needed. And that becomes awfully important as we work through the text this morning. There was nothing new that was needed when Jesus Christ gave us his full revelation of just who he is and what he's accomplished for our salvation. We then went on to say, secondly, that the scope of Paul's ministry was, first of all, in the context of church. We, we saw that in verse 25, as Paul writes, I have become its servant, and its refers to the final word of verse 24, the church, which is the body of Jesus Christ. So as we look at the whole chapter one in view in Colossians, and we considered Epaphras, which was the founder of this church, not Paul. Paul did not found this church, Epaphras did. And we considered the ministry of Paul. We learned that the scope of a genuine ministry is, and a genuine minister for that matter, is to be a servant of Christ, a servant of the gospel, and a servant of the church. A servant of Christ Okay, a servant of the gospel, which is the message about Jesus Christ and how he came to save and a servant of the church, which we found out that Jesus Christ is the head of and the body is an expression of that, this visible body. Therefore, a minister is one who has been set apart by God to minister among the saints in Christ, in the church, with the gospel. And we concluded that the church then is the one instrument. Now, this becomes awfully, awfully important. The church of Jesus Christ is the one instrument on earth by which the risen, ascended, living Christ reveals himself, reveals the invisible God to a world that desperately needs only him. The church then is the visible expression of Christ in the body of believers that Jesus assembled and that Jesus promised that he would build and he promised he would protect and he promised he would make provision for. So in coming to church this morning, we're not really coming to a building per se. We come together. And when we come together in Christ, then we are the church. Therefore, people ought to discover in our midst as we worship Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is alive, that Jesus Christ is king, and that Jesus Christ, the Jesus Christ who once walked and moved in the pages of the New Testament is the Jesus Christ who moves in this world right now amongst us and amongst Cohasset as he is present together with his people. It's very important that we understand that, which is why it ought to be considered one of the highest privileges of the week. And it ought to be considered a very stirring moment in the weeks that we are given by God. That when we come together like this, this is the best thing. The best thing. And if it is not, may God forgive us and may God fix us. 
Our times present to us the opportunity over and over again to make it so easy to move with that which is God-centered and right to move to that which is man-centered and only seems right. Everything we are doing here this morning and everything we do here Sunday by Sunday is right, is really, really right. We may not get it perfect, we understand that. But assembling like this in Jesus' name and worshiping Jesus Christ and opening up Jesus' word. And this morning we have the privilege of taking communion. These things are right. And these things are visible expressions of the body of Jesus Christ to the world. All that was last time. Now we need to move on to say that not only was the scope of the ministry of Paul in the church His ministry was in the scope of suffering. And if you have a worship folder, you can turn to the back there and you'll see that's the third mark. The mark or the call of the ministry and the call of the minister to personal suffering. Now, you need to know this. This this wasn't a good week for me. Because as always, the Bible is a mirror to the man who has the privilege of opening up. and, And as I was working through this, for me personally, and the, the call to suffer for the sake of the gospel, I didn't come out looking like roses this week. So you'll forgive me as we work through this. The ministry of Paul cost him dearly. Paul went through sufferings that would break a thousand hearts. Paul's ministry did not channel him to a life of ease. Paul's ministry did not bring him to instant popularity and instant success. Paul's not going to be applauded as he goes from place to place. He doesn't have a kind of traveling roadshow where people pay $29.99 a ticket to see Paul perform. In other words, Paul is very, very different from some 21st century traveling ministries and traveling evangelists. Ease, applause, luxury is not Paul's given commission. Everywhere he went, it was marked with a profound personal suffering. And all of us here this morning should be aware that we are beneficiaries of the sufferings of the Apostle Paul. We have to understand that. We wouldn't have the New Testament under God if it wasn't for the Apostle Paul. So the Apostle laid himself aside. He laid his life aside for the sake of the body of Christ, which Paul says in verse 24 is the church. So when Paul was suffering, the suffering that he was referring to is not because of Paul's sins. His sufferings was not because he was doing evil. His sufferings were not the normal sufferings that all of us will encounter from time to time because we live in a fallen world and we have fallen flesh. His sufferings were not because he was doing things wrong and then the natural byproduct of bad decisions and foolish choices that all of us are prone to were finally catching up with Paul. He was suffering for only one reason. He was suffering for the sake of the body of Christ, the church, the gospel. Verse 24, if your Bibles are open, I rejoice in what was suffered for you. So Paul was suffering because he was committed to the commission Christ gave him. Now, what was the commission that Jesus Christ gave him? Well, it was the commission to say this and live this out. It was a commission to tell the world that God in love sent the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the incarnation. This Jesus died to pay the penalty of our sins. That's crucifixion. Thereby, this Jesus and only this Jesus completely satisfied the wrath of God. That's substitution, his death for our sin. 
And this Jesus is alive. That's resurrection. And he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. One of the results of the ascension. So we need to repent and believe on Christ before the time's going to come when it's too late. That is, become a Christian. And as Christians, live as a child and live as a servant of Christ. That is the ongoing work of sanctification. That is what put Paul in such a pickle. And so as Paul poured himself out for that message and for that man, the Lord Jesus Christ, and for the Christ people, the church, because he was given that commission, verse 25, he was paying a heavy, heavy price. And that is why he is suffering. So in a very real sense, we discover that when Paul sees the church, Paul sees Christ. And so should we. And when Paul loves Christ, Paul is loving the church. And so should we. And, and like a noble husband who would just lay it all down for the sake of his lovely, precious bride, Paul is continually just laying it all down for the sake of his love for Christ's body, the church. And if suffering is the scope, then suffering is the scope. This week, at the end of the week, I received an email from one of our missionaries that we support. And she just has a host of medical issues. And at, at the very end of the email, she says this. She says, I, I backed off my thyroid biopsy, not because I was afraid to die, for it will be glorious to meet my maker. What frightened me was how well I have prepared my successor to take the role to continue on the ministry. What was she doing? She was suffering for the sake of the body of Christ, the church. By the way, in the life of Paul, this is somewhere near the last third of Paul's life. So in the last third of Paul's life, he he wasn't kicking back. He was actually kicking it in. James Moffat, thinking through things through, said the church owes much to prison literature and the church owes much to in prison Christians. This letter, by the way, was written by Paul from prison. The church then is built up by Jesus Christ in repeated acts of self-denial from God's people. Let's see, you know, that's the way it is. <laughs> repeated acts of self-denial from the people of God. And what we're doing when we do that is simply continuing on what Jesus Christ began. Jesus Christ was called a man of suffering and he was familiar with sorrow. To the very end, he was familiar with Sorrow, and to an extent, so are his people. Because the student, Jesus says, is not greater than the teacher. He said his followers are to carry a cross. And and we all know that it's so difficult to carry the cross in the church in the West. At least it is for me. The cross of Jesus Christ, for the best of reasons, gets in the way as it should. Peter said, 1 Peter 4.14, if you are hated for the name of Christ, if you suffer for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests on you. Paul, in another place, labeled his earthly sufferings for the sake of Christ and his church. He called them momentary afflictions. I took some liberty and I translated that phrase like this. These specks of distress which are producing for us eternal weight of glory, far outweighing them all. Paul endures so much for the well-being of the church. So this week I had to ask myself the question, why was Paul so good? Why was Paul so committed to suffering for Christ's sake? 
I mean, he just flat out always rearranged his whole life for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was always first on his list. Jesus Christ was always last on his list when he was making his life choices and life decisions. So I did what I had to do. I opened up my Bible and I just kind of tried to read through the life of Paul as much as I could in the given time of the week. And I came to three scriptures and I came to two conclusions. Three scriptures, 2 Corinthians 5.14. The love, this is Paul speaking, the love of Christ constrains me. It controls me. The love of Christ hems me in. So that means his fellowship with Christ was like a tender love song. Christ's love has Paul first, and Christ's love has Paul to the very last. Philippians 3.8, I consider, again Paul, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost everything. Everything. Romans 12. Therefore I urge you in view of God's mercy. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And then he says. This is reasonable. So why does Paul suffer so well? Well Paul had two graces that were given to him. Number one. Loving Christ. And loving what Christ loves. Which Jesus said is simply obedience to Jesus. That's all it is. Loving Jesus and loving what Christ loves. Is simply obedience. Second. To consistently, listen carefully, to consistently in every age of his earthly pilgrimage, he was able to think things through, okay? He was able to think things through in view of God's mercy, i.e. in view of my privileged state, which will go on forever, it is the most reasonable thing that I can think of to live my whole life and sacrifice for my master. So suffering... For the sake of the gospel, to Paul made absolute sense to him. Loved ones, we, I think it's fair to say we have to find out what this means for us. What does this mean for us? To suffer for the sake of the gospel. So let's just be clear here. When, 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 we, when we consider our loyalty to an ide- ideology or even some loyalty to theology... We, we may be tempted to become angry at someone who disagrees with us, and we think that's somehow that's suffering, but we're only angry because we're saying it and they're not believing it. But, but we're not angry because the person of Jesus Christ and the honor of his name is, is, is nowhere in our radar. We're not thinking about him so much. Is that we just want to be right. And we would be hard-pressed at that moment to say we are loving Christ. Jesus Christ is a real person. Jesus Christ is not an idea, and he's certainly not just an ideology. Now, you'll notice that Paul in his suffering isn't sulking, right? Verse 24, that's what he says. I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still, regard, what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, if you're paying attention to what I just read at the end of verse 24, immediately there's a great problem there that that presses itself on any reader that's going to pay attention to what they're reading. And and the problem is that if you just read that as a mere surface reading, the text would almost say that the sufferings of Christ at Calvary in the atonement isn't enough, that there was something missing that Paul had to do to make up or to complete the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Now, when you and I, when we come to a difficult text like that, what do we do? And don't say Google it, right? What we do is what we always do when... That was a lot funnier than everybody thought. At least in my head, it was a lot funnier. 
Give me about two seconds. Okay, everybody's forgiven. What do you do when you come to a difficult text? Well, the first thing you do is you ask yourself this this important question. Does the thought that the sufferings of Jesus Christ was not a complete once and final act and that something else or someone else is needed to add it, be added to it. Is that a thought that runs through the whole of the New Testament? And the answer is absolutely not. And, and when we do this to any text, when we do this, what begins to happen is we very quickly begin to discover what is foundational in the Christian faith and what is not foundational in Christian doctrine. So for example, if you take verse 24 in its context And you tried to suggest that there's something lacking in the sufferings of Jesus Christ by his death and resurrection, something that needs to be added to it. We could just look at the first chapter of Colossians and say that is a mistaken interpretation. We don't even have to leave the chapter. If your Bibles are open, look at verse 12b. What has Paul already said? We've been qualified. We've been rescued. Verse 13, brought in because, verse 14, in Christ we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And you can't see it in the Greek, but the Greek is implied all sins, past sins, current sins. Future sins. And how did that happen? Verse 20, Christ has reconciled all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So that, so that this salvation that we have in Christ is a complete salvation. All things in heaven and on earth, verse 22, reconciled how? By the physical body of Jesus Christ. That, that is the triumph of the gospel. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again in my sanctification, in my justification? How does it all happen? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So when we take that first step, ask yourself the question, is this a thought that runs through the whole of the chapter? You follow it by asking yourself, what was the reason why Paul wrote the letter in the first place? Now, this is going to become very important in just a second. Well, why did Paul write the letter in the first place? Well, the reason why Paul wrote the letter in the first place was there were a heresy saying that Jesus Christ's salvation was insufficient and that there had to be other additions and other mediators and all kinds of religious routines that need to be added to Jesus' salvation so that we can really, really, truly, truly be saved. And of course, Paul writes all the letter to say that is wrong. So whatever Paul means in this phrase, we, we know that he does not mean that there's something in Christ's sufferings that is lacking and that someone, i.e. Paul, or something, i.e. religious stuff, has to be added to Christ's work at Calvary. Now here's the reason why it becomes so important. It's important because for many, many years as it has been continually preached that good works, suffering in purgatory, faithful attendance at Mass the purchases of indulgence, or any other so-called merits can be and must be added to the work of Christ at Calvary for a person's salvation. Verse 24 then was one of the proof texts that people would use. And these things must be spoken of. It's not easy to speak of things like this, but, but they must be spoken of because not only are they wrong, they dishonor the sacrifice of Christ. For example, the finished work of Christ and the completeness of his sufferings is denied in in a Roman Catholic mass. Because in a Roman Catholic mass, what is happening, they describe when communion is taking and when the, the whole mass is unfolding, they describe it as a real sacrifice, which is equivalent of that which Christ offered at the cross, though in a kind of different way. Let me just read from their own literature, if you would. Paragraph 29 of, of Mystery Fide, the mystery of the faith. This is a, a Roman Catholic document from Vatican II. This is what they say. Mass is offered not only for their sins, 
But for punishments, satisfaction, and the needs of the faithful still alive. But also for those who have died in Christ, but are not yet fully cleansed. And it's that phrase, not yet fully cleansed, that Christians, for Christ's sake, ought to have some trouble with. Because it denies that the sufferings of Christ are sufficient and and reveals that the victory of Christ at Calvary is somehow deficient. Hence the need for a mass. Because in the Mass, it's saying that Christ is re-sacrificed all over again, hence, hence uh, transubstantiation. And in that event, it's the real body that they're taking of Christ, and it's the real blood that they're taking of Christ, which is once again being offered up. So every time they meet for Mass, they are essentially re-sacrificing Christ every time. But what does the New Testament book of Hebrews says? says there's only one sacrifice for sin, and that sacrifice has been done once and for all. It's always efficacious. This is what we kind of need to know. When we come to worship, we don't come to make something happen. We come to worship because something happened. Do we learn? I hope so. Will we grow? We should. Will we fellowship? Absolutely pray and all that. But we don't come here to make us even more Christian. We don't come here to make us even more Christian or because something is lacking in Christ's salvation. So there's a great difference between the truth we sing and read about and preach about and that which is official Roman Catholic dogma. Now listen carefully, which is certainly not saying, and I'm not saying that Roman Catholics are not Christians. I am not saying that, okay? Although if you read Vatican II, 1965, they will tell you that if you're not part of them, you are not in the true church. But I'm not saying that, okay? But this is what we can say. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross is a sacrifice that needs no repetition and a sacrifice that needs no additions. There's nothing that we can add to Christ's finished work. It is a complete act. And, and when we apply it by repentance and faith, then we become Christians. And when it's genuine, we stay Christians forever. And nothing is lacking. Thus, thus the mass, as it's defined, is something that the New Testament would frankly scratch its head about. So we know what it doesn't mean. So what does the verse mean? What does verse 24b mean? This, this, um, let me just read it again. This, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, which is his church. What does it mean? Well, this is what I certain it means. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ is a complete sacrifice that rendered complete satisfaction to God. Okay? God is completely satisfied in his son's work. It is a finished work. However, the enemies of Jesus Christ are not. The enemies of Christ in his earthly ministry um, hated Jesus and they wanted him to suffer because of what he was saying. Remember when we worked through Luke's gospel, about every three chapters, someone was scheming to kill Jesus Christ. And people hated him and they plotted him, plotted for his death. So just as the enemies of Jesus Christ walked and moved in Jesus' day, heading towards Jesus, the enemies of Jesus Christ walk and move in our day, but there is no body, physical body of Jesus right now that they can attack. So, so his people who are a visible expression of that are those who the enemies of Christ can afflict. So the hatred that people pounded with Christ with is the hatred that, that was being pounded on Paul. 
And it's the hatred to a degree of all of us who seek to live and worship Christ will, will experience. Therefore, in that sense, to a degree, all Christians are suffering the sufferings of Christ. And let me give you one example. It's the Apostle Paul. He used to be known as Saul of Tarsus. And he once was a persecutor of Christians. And he caused Christians much suffering. And then the Lord Jesus Christ came down on Paul. And Paul fell down off his his mule or donkey or horse or whatever it was. And Paul was persecuting the church. And then Jesus says to Paul, who at that time was Saul, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In other words, when Paul was putting the hammer down on Christians, he was actually putting the hammer down on Christ. So Christians are filling up in their flesh the afflictions of Christ, not because something is lacking in the atonement, but because as we do what Christians do, people realize that there's a coming judgment. And the enemies of Jesus Christ will not stand for such talk. Don't you dare tell me that I will have to stand before God one day and be judged. Of course, the Bible says that over and over again. So again, there's nothing lacking in the atonement, but because there's a coming judgment, because we are Christ's people, the visible expression of Christ on the earth, we, we suffer. We suffer. And persecuting Christians, then they are persecuting Christ. And in living for Christ, the Christians suffer for Christ as well. So there's another question, right? Are we living for Christ? Question, are we living for Christ? Answer, here's then suffering like this kind is to be expected. Let me tell you just quickly how I can be certain that you'll never suffer for Jesus Christ. Don't say a lick about Christ outside these doors. Smooth sailing, okay? Smooth sailing. Don't say, say zip about Jesus outside these doors. And, and if you're a hard worker and you've got some skill up there, you're going to be fine. No suffering. Are we living for Christ? Okay, so what are the genuine marks of a God-given ministry? The source is God himself. God gives the task. God gives the message. The scope is the Christ and the gospel and the church. And the scope is suffering. Suffering for the sake of the body of Jesus Christ. Suffering for the essentials. Not the non-essentials, but the essentials. Fourth mark then. Then the secret of the ministry is explained. Okay, so I tried to keep all S's. You know how that goes. It had a little rhythm to it. Source, the scope, the secret. Well, let me say, say it like this. At the time that Paul wrote this letter, pagan religion, Greek sects, even, even some sects of Judaism had their, had their little secrets. And this is how they went. They had public ceremonies. And in the public ceremonies, they would not give out their little special religious secrets. They just kind of tell everybody plain stuff. And then they would kind of say, if you really want to know the secret stuff, if you, if you want to know the, the stuff that, you know, just will make you go gaga over, and if you really want to be what God wants you to be, then come to our little special rites and come to our little special ceremonies and come to our little special in- initiations and we'll bring you those secrets. So it becomes like only a privileged few can know what needs to be known. Now, in our days, usually that involves lots and lots of money. People will say, if you give me the money, then I'll give you the secret, okay? Which is hard for me to understand. But anyway, that was paganism first century. 
first century paganism. So there was monasticism. People lived a kind of bohemian lifestyle. There was Judaism. There was paganism. And they said, we have these secrets and we'll tell you the secrets, not as public knowledge, but we'll keep it to ourselves and to you in these special rites. And that was happening in Colossae. Now, what would happen was the teachers weren't teaching paganism. They were trying to teach Christianity and they were using pagan formulas to try to replace the normal patterns that God gave us. And that's not a mark of a genuine ministry. So basically what they were doing is they were taking pagan methods, they were baptizing them and saying, okay, this is how you can really, really know the real church. And so they would suggest if you, if you really want to know the mystery of true Christianity, and if you really, really want to be serious about Christianity, then you go through these certain things. And again, they had special rites, secret teachings, some hoops to jump through, <laughs> right? Just a few hoops to jump through for Jesus. And you can know the secrets unknown by the rest of us poor saps, right? Select group from among the people, introduce the secret mysteries unknown by the general group. Now, if you're thinking, that's all over 21st century Christianity. I mean, have you ever been asked this question? Do you have the fullness of the Holy Spirit or are you just a Christian? Someone asked me that a few years ago. Do you have the fullness of the Holy Spirit or are you just a Christian? Have you gone through XYZ program and boot camp, or or do you just go to church? In other words, have you got it all? Are you part of our group, or, or are you just a Christian? Have you had this amazing experience that, man, if you have this experience, it will set you out on fire for Jesus Christ? Or do you just kind of go to church, and you pray, and you read the Bible, and you sing to God, worship God? Hello? Do you want the fullness that will give you the edge? This, this, is a, this is a take on some emails I get every week. Do you want the fullness? I mean, look at me. Of course I want the fullness. <laughs> Have you looked at me in the mirror? Just kidding. <laughs> I mean, do you, do you want the edge? Then come to our rocket power group, and we'll give you rocket power tips and rocket power hints, hints and rocket power power that the rest of the plain old Christians who just attend the plain old church will never know. And of course, all that's wrong. It dishonors Christ again. So Paul is so wise. So he, he talks to the group and he uses the catchphrase as mystery. That was the word that they would use. And, and as soon as he writes that, the readers have to go, mystery? Oh, okay, wait a minute. I've heard that in the air in our culture, mystery. And Paul says, okay, let me tell you the mystery. The mystery, verse 26, if your Bibles are still open. That mystery which was in the past hidden, but now in revelation and historical events in Christ, that mystery is now revealed to everybody. In other words, the mystery is no more a mystery. Before men knew Messiah was coming, but they did not know who Messiah was. But now in Jesus Christ, it has been revealed. So the secret's out. And it hasn't been revealed by some kind of special secret ceremony or special group of people who only know, really, really know. Rather, it's proclaimed to people by public proclamation, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and by personal conversations and having nothing to do with secret initiations. Verse 26b, now all God's people know the mystery. They, they know everything. That's a child's dream, right? Dad, tell me everything. Tell me everything, Dad. I was 29 years old till I found out that for two weeks my dad smoked cigars. This is by accident. I'm like, Dad, I've been around a long time and you never told me. Over two weeks, you smoked cigars. 
Why did you, why did you smoke cigars? Like, go to your room. Dad, I'm 29 years old. I am not going to my room. Go to your room. Okay, I'll go to my room. So in Christ, every Christian right now can know everything. Now we understand that we're not what we should be, but, but we're far better than what we used to be. And we're not the final product yet that will take a major act of God at our end. And so the wonder of this mystery is not in its exclusiveness, belonging to only a few people. It is in its inclusiveness intended for everyone, to all the nations. And and the mystery then, what is the mystery? I think, I bet we know it's nothing more and it's nothing less than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 27b, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christian, in verse 2 of chapter 1, Paul told the Christians they were in Christ. And now in verse 27, Christ is in them. And will you notice in verse 27 when Paul says, the glorious riches of this mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory, how much care that he actually puts into his wording. I mean, that's all saying a whole lot of nice things about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Calvin, John Calvin says this, and it struck me, and I just want to share it with you. He said, we must always pay attention to how highly Paul speaks of the dignity of the gospel. For we are aware that the ingratitude of humans is such that although this treasure is incalculable and the grace of God in it is so wonderful, they nevertheless carelessly despite it or at least despise it or at least think far too lightly of it. That's like, ugh, 21st century Christianity. Think too lightly of the gospel. We need to, we need to be through. Do, do we realize that the only reason why we have access to God in prayer right now is because we are in Christ on the basis of the personal sufferings of Jesus Christ at Calvary. That's the only reason why we can speak to God. Do we realize that the only reason that we have victory over death and then we actually get to our deathbed, whatever that deathbed looks like, It is our belief in Christ that Jesus Christ has paid fully and completely the penalty for my sins. It's the only reason why there's no sting in death and there's some hope in that circumstance and there's a whole lot of hope past death. And do we realize that eternal life is only possible on the basis of Christ's sacrifice for our sin so that the only reason why we can say we are going to heaven is because Jesus paid for my sins on the cross at Calvary. That's it. Now, do you know this? Do do you know this this way? And does this mark you? Christ in you is far more than your conscience. And, And Christ in you is far more than just doing religious things. Christianity is a personal living relationship with Jesus Christ. Christianity is a personal living relationship with Jesus Christ. And so the question comes, do you have that? Do we have that? And if you do not have that right now, then please come to your senses, acknowledge in repentance and faith, tell God he was absolutely right, that you are a sinner, that you see it now, and as you stand right now, you are wrong before him, and tell God right now that you understand that when Jesus Christ died on that cross, he died for your sin. He died for your sin so that you can, if this is you this morning, you can right now be placed in Christ, and right now, Christ 
will be placed in you. Tell me a greater privilege. Tell me a greater privilege. There is none. Thank you for your attention. In just a moment, we're going to receive from the table. If the elders of our congregation could come forward, if we would bow just for a brief prayer. Father, as always, what it was helpful and useful, um, keep it in our minds. What was lacking and unhelpful, remove it. Thank you for the privileges that we've already partaken of, and thank you for the privilege that we are now heading to, for Jesus' sake. Amen.